If you would please turn to Genesis chapter 14. If you were guessing we were going to be in Hebrews, you can keep your bookmark there because we are going to go back to Hebrews. Genesis chapter 14. Uh, we've this is review. We've reviewed this recently. Just quick review in Genesis chapter 14. You've got a war between kings, and a lot gets captured in this. And as we discussed a while back, as we went through Genesis, um, when we think war, and when you see read war here, um, these are going to be in entirely different scales. All right. This is not going to be, here's a war between 100,000 people. You know, this is not that size. All right. uh, this is significantly smaller than that. We know that because of the amount of people that Abraham ended up bringing with him. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a war, but a rather small scale war, but still a war nonetheless between various um, people and kings in the area. Lot gets captured as a part of this. This is why Abraham gets involved. Verse 17, and this is after that, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, that's, this, is, um, this is primarily what we know from Genesis. Well, this is really all we know from Genesis about Melchizedek. Now, generally speaking, people will think about these particular books and ask when were these books written all right some people say like because they are called the books of moses that moses might have been the one that put them in this particular form that they are in now or maybe it came into a different form later all right some of these earlier stories there's lots of questions about that regardless one of the point i want to point out about this is Let's just say, let's just pretend we go with the, they were all written during the time of Moses and Moses was involved. What this means is uh, you're essentially going to get Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all written at the same time. Which means when this particular story is written, you already have a Levitical priesthood. All right? You already have the law established. You already have all of that in mind. Which means this is being written at a time, all right, when there is a priesthood. And then when you're reading through this, all right, it's good to notice, wait a minute, where does this priesthood come from? All right. He is a priest of God Most High. This man, whoever he is, is not a Jew. All right. He is a Gentile of some sort. Uh, he is a king, but yet, and he is a priest, and not a pagan priest. He is a priest of God Most High. And you read through here, and then nothing else is said about him, and you keep reading, and nothing else is ever said about him until you get to the Psalms, where it's mentioned once. All right? Kind of a mysterious figure. And that's, I think, the way you should approach the book of Hebrews when you think about this. You've got this mysterious figure that appears, all right, and then disappears. With that in mind, 
Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Yes, sir. It seems significant that he's the king of Salem. Oh, yeah. Which becomes Jerusalem. Yes. But the kingness of him is rarely mentioned. The priestliness is always mentioned. Yes. Always in the in the two places that talk about him, Hebrews and, and Psalms. But you're right. Yeah. The the king aspect is you know, you can see in the book of Hebrews that he does focus on the king aspect, but, well, he does mention the king aspect, so I assume in the book of Hebrews that that is part of his thinking, but the focus is not on that. It is on the priestly aspect of it. Uh, that's where his argument goes. So it is, I agree, very interesting. And yes, um, this is probably, all right, this is probably the king of Jerusalem at the time, which is also very interesting that you have a priest to God Most High on, essentially, Jerusalem, where God would later establish Jerusalem and would later establish his temple, and around which he would establish, of course, his kingdom, at least for a while. So, yes, that is very fascinating. So Hebrews, when we get to chapter 7, We've already discussed Melchizedek, right? Not a not to a major degree, right? Uh, he has been mentioned, like for example, in Hebrews chapter five, um, it mentions you know, verse ten being Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and it's already also quoted the Psalm. But then he switches back into warnings against apostasy, which we've already covered. And so, in chapter 7, he shifts back to Melchizedek, and there's a significantly more detailed discussion of Melchizedek, which is what we're going to talk about today. Now, last time, uh, Michael asked, hey, this Michael right here, he's like, hey, what are the arguments for or against for a particular topic that I mentioned? And that topic is essentially this. Who is Melchizedek? Is he human or is he not? All right, and so I'm going to give you some arguments, all right? Um, there's actually a very long debate on, is Melchizedek human or not? All right, And it's not just because of how um, the Hebrews treats it. This was also kind of a thing within Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism during the time of Jesus and, and before. All right, And so um, that's one question you have to ask. And if you read Hebrews commentaries, you're going to get different answers depending on what commentary you read from. And so Michael rightly asked, okay, what are the arguments essentially for and against he, uh, the Melchizedek being a perhaps some sort of angelic figure or perhaps just a man? And so that's where we're going to start. And then we will think more in detail all right, about the argument of chapter 7. Because ultimately, wherever you end up on that, the argument for chapter 7 is fairly clear. Um, but it, it, it is at least a very interesting question. All right, so why would even someone entertain the fact, all right, why, do, why would even someone even entertain the fact that Melchizedek is not a human, not a normal person, all right? You read Genesis, there's nothing in the text that says, and he shone real bright, or he came down from heaven. So there's nothing like that at all. From a, essentially from a, Jewish interpretation standpoint, all right, one, one principle that some Jews in Second Temple Judaism 
meaning this would be intertestamental Judaism. One principle they used is basically this notion. The scripture is, in, is inspired by God, and that means not only what it says is inspired by God, but also what it avoids saying is inspired by God. And so based on that principle of interpretation, which you can get, in, if you read, you'll sometimes see a fancy Latin name, but that's basically the an interpretive method that people use. And it seems to be, and this would be the argument that uh, people will very commonly use for Hebrews, whether they think the author of Hebrews is talking about an angelic figure or not. I'll read some selections from our library in a minute. Um, they will, he will basically be using this particular principle. And so let's uh, read some at Hebrews, and I'm going to point out a few particular things that are particularly pertinent to this question. Chapter 7 in Hebrews, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of, most, of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And that is just etymology. Right? He's just looking, what, what, does, what does Melchizedek mean? It means king, Melech, Zedek, righteousness. And what is king of peace? Well, that's from the name Salem. All right. He is without father or without mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And either way you go with the interpretation, um, this is that principle of interpretation of what is not said in scripture is as significant as what is, is said in scripture because of the doctrine of inspiration. Often people will point to this and go, this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's not unique in this. This is something that other Jews would have done. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. All right. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, in the book of Genesis, who's his father? Not mentioned. Who's his mother? Also not mentioned. What genealogy does he fit in? Also not mentioned. And so therefore, maybe there is significance to that, and some people would go there, and that would be the argument, at least for some people when they interpret Hebrews. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. Now let's go, oh, and but resembling the Son of God, all right, and so he's, he's drawing a comparison between Melchizedek and the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. All right. Now, how does this comparison work? Well, the Son of God, does he, all right, does, how does he fit in terms of a genealogy? Well, when he became a, a man, he did actually fit within a genealogy, right? Uh, that's very important. He was of the tribe of, of David, right? Tribe of Judah. However, does he fit within a genealogy? The answer is, well, no. I mean, as a man, he did. As the divine son of God, well, no, he existed before all humans did. And so in that sense, all right, he has no human mother. He has no human father, even though he would have a divine father. Let's continue. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. 
But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. And that's the next thing that you got to think about in terms of Melchizedek. What would it mean, all right, to say that it was received by one, all right? It was received by one that it is testified that he lives, okay? There's no one in history who has received tithes who is not living when they receive tithes, okay? So this is not important and not interesting. The argument would be, unless this implies something other than just the fact that he was... He was living. Now, um, okay, and a little bit more. And one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And we discussed this last time, and I'll just simply repeat. What the author of Hebrews is generally doing in this passage is showing, as he does very often, all right, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. All right? How do we know this? All right. Well, when someone pays tithes to someone else, they're acknowledging their superiority. That's his argument. Abraham, when he paid tithes to Melchizedek, whoever he is, all right, he's acknowledging Melchizedek's superiority over him. That's a very clear you know, argument. That is kind of the point here. Therefore, all right, since Aaron is a descendant of Abraham, Aaron is inferior to Melchizedek. And so, therefore, the Aaronic priesthood, the high priesthood under Aaron, is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's the argument right there, essentially as a nutshell, regardless of who exactly he is. All right? Aaron's inferior. All right? Why is Aaron inferior? Is Aaron inferior to Abraham? Yes, Aaron is inferior to Abraham. Is, Aaron, is Abraham inferior to Melchizedek? That's the argument. Yes, he is inferior to Melchizedek. Therefore, the priesthood that Melchizedek held is greater than the priesthood that Aaron held, all right? which has all sorts of implications for the law, all right? which he will get into. Yes? Abraham taking possession of the land of Israel. Um, he came to the land of Israel at this point, but he never, like, he never fully owned the whole land of Israel. Who were right? the occupants of Salem at the time of Melchizedek? Some, somebody who wasn't a Jew, right? Because Abraham was the first Jew, and so this would be some people that are totally not mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, they would not be not be Jews for sure. Some Gentile nation, essentially. Yes, Bill. Just thinking about um, like he's the king of Salem, and Abraham knows who he is, and they meet. Mm-hmm. And assuming he's been king for a while, like this isn't. Sometimes I've envisioned this, envisioned this to be like a. A spurious visit by Melchizedek. He appears. Abraham recognizes Oof. this guy yeah. is awesome. He gives tithes to him and then disappears. But if he's the king, that's not the case. He's like yeah. ruling over his kingdom. And he's mm-hmm. doing kingly stuff. And if Abraham is living in that general area, he's going to know this guy. Yeah, that's all. I think exactly right. This is. 
he seems mysterious to us. He's like, oh, there's Melchizedek. I know that guy. Yeah, totally makes sense. Okay, so that's that's the really the most important argument of that particular paragraph. All right, the Aaronic priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood, and Jesus is not a priest according to the Aaronic priesthood. He could not be, because he is not in that genealogy. He's not of the tribe of Levi, but he is a priest according to a greater priesthood, that is the Melchizedekian priesthood. Okay, so uh, now let's continue on. There's one more uh, relevant thing for talking about Melchizedek as a regular person or not. Now, if perfection had been attainable through through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, Right. Now, notice, here's a connection. This will come back up again. There's a connection between law and priesthood. Keep that in mind. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? It's a good question. Why do you need two priesthoods? Right. For when there is a change in the priesthood, here it is, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Which, if you think through what the law is, if you think through the first five books of the Old Testament, all right, you can see the priesthood is very much intertwined with the rest of the law, right? Very much so. Because much of the law has to do with, for example, for cleanliness and uncleanliness, which absolutely has to do with the priesthood. All that stuff is intertwined. And so for the author of Hebrews, here it's like here's he's like, well, here's some obvious things. Law is related to priesthood. Next obvious thing, all right, verse twelve, for when there is a change in priesthood, there must therefore be a change in the law. Alright. For the one to whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. And at this point, he's talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood because Melchizedekians did not, they did not serve at the altar. Right? That was the Aaronic priesthood. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Right? Continuing same thought. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, Aaron, right? But by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that verse right there, verse 16, is also something that... um, is going to be relevant if you're going to make an argument for Melchizedek not being entirely normal, right? What does it mean to compare Jesus to Melchizedek and say that it's not based on a legal requirement, a bodily descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life? It's the saying that Melchizedek has an indestructible life. That would be part of the argument. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why? What's, what's the relationship between priesthood and an indestructible life? Well, I should say this. What's the relationship between an eternal priesthood and an indestructible life? Going back to a point we've made before, right? 
What's the connection between those two? It may only apply to Jesus. It may apply to Melchizedek. That's part of the question. But at least when it applies to Jesus, what's the connection? Right. Exactly. Priesthood is bound to a living person. All right. Aaron was priest. Was he priest forever? No, he died. And so therefore the high priest passed on to somebody else. And that priest was priest for a while. And then he died and it was passed on. So therefore for somebody to priest to be a priest forever, they must have a indestructible life. They must have never-ending life. All right? So therefore, this is why, from a Christian standpoint, we can't give doctrinally on the doctrine of the resurrection. It is true. Period. You drop it, you drop Christianity. Why? Because Jesus is no longer priest, essentially. He can no longer stand before God on our behalf. This is one of those non-negotiables. Okay, so um, for on the one hand, verse 18, uh, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay, once again, the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Aaronic. Now that we've basically gone through that particular argument, and that's mostly everything that covers what we would think about Melchizedek. All right. So like I said, uh, this, is, this is one of those long debated things. I recognize that I have weird ideas, all right? And you also recognize that I have weird ideas, and there's no point in hiding it. So just, I just want you to be clear. This is not my fault. All right. This is not my fault. This is absolutely a fairly normal discussion. And um, of every resource I have on Hebrews discussed this. All right. It's, it's not like a few people discuss it. It's like literally everyone um, of the resources I looked at. All right. This is for you, Michael. I did my homework. OK. Uh, of the th- of the resources, three of them were noncommittal. All right. Now, many of you probably know of A.W. Pink's. Uh, commentary on the book of Hebrews. All right, it's a it's an older commentary, but fairly common. Uh, basically, he just like he, his point is uh, the Holy Spirit has not been fit to give us any information on these points. All right, I mean that's his point. He's just like not even going to tell you what I think. All right, um, Anchor Bible Dictionary, Lexham Bible Dictionary, both basically were noncommittal, but I think that's that's kind of a Bible dictionary thing often to be noncommittal about things. So that doesn't tell you much. All right. Uh, you want to hear about the just he's just a dude or he's more than just a dude position? Which one do we want to hear from, from first? More than just a dude. Okay. So of the, of once again the resources I had, four of my commentaries were more than just a dude. Uh, and basically, what they're going to do, and I can. I'm going to read you a selection. So this is from Timothy George. Mm-hmm. So, you know this guy. Nice, good Baptist. Melchizedek's fullest likeness, and this is to his from his commentary in Hebrews, as you probably guess. Fullest likeness to the Son of God is found in the inference from the Scripture's silence that he remains forever. That's that old interpretive principle of based on inspiration, right? You don't have to go there, but many people have. If the Scripture doesn't say it, that was on purpose. Based on the scripture silent that he remains a priest 
forever. The phrase is a more Hellenistically elegant way of expressing forever. The only New Testament appearance of this phrase in Hebrews after this application to Melchizedek is used three more times with specific reference to the eternal priesthood of Christ, all in chapter 10. Similarly, this is the first time Hebrews uses uh, the verb to remain. Um, Hebrews uses it for a stable character of the Christian hope. In short, it is not only scripture that suggests a resemblance between the ancient priest king and Christ, it is the conscious selecting and reshaping of the scripture text that makes him his resemblance impressive. Here I think the Hebrews wants to say that scripture itself has drawn Melchizedek in such a fashion as to enable the reader to see a likeness between him and Jesus, the Son of God. This enables a further comparison between the priesthood of Melchizedek slash Jesus and that derived from Abraham through the tribe of Levi. Totally. Whereas a present-day reader might take the narrative silence as an indication of a discrete source inserted into the ancient text, like, where's this random story? Well, somebody just stuck something in there. Our author follows the interpretive principle that has been called non in Torah, non in mundo. Fancy way of saying, if it's not the text, it's not in the world. The silence of scripture on a given point can be taken as evidence that something did not exist in the extra-textual world. Thus, if scripture does not report on his ancestors, Melchizedek had none. The reader may conclude that he is without human antecedent. All right? But Hebrews goes further. Neither does scripture report him as having a beginning of days nor end of life. Once more, using the term... The reader can therefore conclude that Melchizedek had no natural birth and did not die. Melchizedek is somehow, by Scripture's own implicit testimony, internal. All right, so that's Timothy George. And, um, like I said, he's not unusual. He's not a weirdo. All right. And I could quote from three others, but what good would that do? And so the basic argument is... What I've kind of mentioned, you, you take these indestructible life. What does that mean? All right, what people who hold that position are, are going to take that first verse that really talks about this, 7 3. He is without father or without mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, Melchizedek there seems to continue a priest forever. All right. How is this possible? How could he possibly continue as a priest forever unless he is, for example, not human, and therefore not subject to death? Some sort of angelic figure. Yeah. Could, I don't think this is right. Then you shouldn't say it. But <laughs> Thank you for that vote of confidence. Yeah. But could it be some kind of coming of Jesus? Because Melchizedek sounds like Jesus. Oh, see, I, good job. Thank you. Good job. You raised yeah. me right. Yeah, good job. The reason I say I don't know if it's right is because even though Jesus, pro- it would make sense because Jesus and God are one, he existed in the beginning. His first yeah. real coming was when he came as a human and then died. So could it yeah. be kind of, I'm not exactly sure how to explain all this, but. Yes, it could be. It could be, yes. And so we know there are pre-incarnate visits of Jesus. That's the word I needed. Yes. Uh, It is very normal to believe in that. I totally believe in that that is the case in multiple places in Scripture. Um, Some people have said that this is not a separate angelic figure. Some people have said, no, this is actually Jesus. All right? Which, 
Um, if you've got Abraham paying tithes to Jesus himself, and you have Aaron paying tithes to Jesus himself as an argument, it works. That's not what it says here, but it's possible. And some people have actually said that. So you're not weirdo if you, if you no, think no, that I, that's I a possibility. I someone else would have come up with that. There's a lot of people in the earth. Yeah. And some people have argued uh, as well, and this is a minority position, uh, but you do see this in a document from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that uh, Melchizedek, as a human, but he actually will live forever because he was taken up to heaven like Elijah. Right? Elijah? He never died. Uh, Melchizedek in the same way. And there's even one doc. The, the document basically says that at the end of days, uh, Elijah and Melchizedek will be a part of uh, the judgment group. They will be standing in judgment over people as a part of the final things. Not scripture. We don't believe it. But it's something that was in Second Temple Judaism. And so... That doesn't explain the lack of genealogy, though. You're right. It does not explain the lack of father, the lack of mother, and the lack of genealogy. Yeah. And so that's generally where people are going to go. This is the most important verse for it, is verse 3. And uh, you'll look at the other things as in, if you're going to com- make a comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek, all right? The, the, one of those very important... Comparisons is length of life argument, right? It's this figure for the comparison to be as tight as possible must be eternal. That would be the argument. Okay. What about on the other side? Since you said to do that one last. All right. Well, um, of the commentaries I have, uh, John Owen, Leon Morris, and T. Wright were all basically, no, not a defined figure. Uh, but instead of them, let's read from F.F. F. Bruce. Um, I got here a little late this morning, so I just actually just jumped in the library to look it up and see what Mr. F.F. F. Bruce has. He would be a good example of the argument against it. All right. In commenting on Hebrews 7.3, the words which follow present an outstanding example of the argument from silence in a typological setting. That same thing we've talked about. It's the argument of silence, all right? Uh, not an argument from silence, the logical fallacy, or, the, or at least not, not that same argument from silence, different one. When Melchizedek is described as being without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, end quote, it is not suggested that he was a biological anomaly or an angel in human guise. Historically, Melchizedek appears to have belonged to a dynasty of priest kings in which he is both predecessors and successors. Um, at to, if this point had been put to our author, he would have agreed at once, no doubt. But this consideration was foreign to his purpose. The important consideration was the account of Melchizedek in Holy Writ. To him, the silences of Scripture were as much due to divine inspiration as were its statements. There's that principle. In the only record which Scripture provides of Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18-20, nothing is said of his parentage, nothing is said of his ancestry or progeny, nothing is said of his birth, nothing is said of his death. He appears to be a living man, king of Salem, and priest of God Most High, and as such, he disappears. In all this, in the silences, as well as the statements, he is a fitting type of Christ. In fact, the record of the things it says of him and the things it does not say has assimilated him to the Son of God. It is the eternal being of the Son of God that is here in view, not his human life.
All right, and so what's the argument? There actually isn't much of one, all right? Mostly, and this is true of all of them, all right? And this is the nature of the situation. Mostly, the argument for he is not a semi-divine figure is just a, you're just going too far. That's just not quite there, right? That's basically the argument. Um, in both of these and in the uh, three I had at home, um, that's just basically it. It's just like, no, that's not what he's, he's, you're going too far, all right? It's not a, let me point out, here's the things in Hebrews that says this is not the case. And the reason why you can't do that is because it's not there, all right? They're just basically, it's a, you've gone too far, it doesn't quite go that far. Mm. The whole point of this is just to make, all right, a comparison. And that comparison is that... Jesus is of a greater priesthood, all right? And if you think about, based on Dr. Bruce, actually Mr. Bruce, he never got a PhD, I don't believe. Um, Mr. Bruce, Master Bruce, you would say. Uh, based, based on him, it's the silencers are there as something typological, not something that was actual about the king of Salem. Okay? So, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, you're not you're not really gonna find much of an argument. You're just gonna find a I hear you but no on things. It, it seems like what what he was getting at to me is and and I I see both, but um that because his genealogy is not mentioned, that doesn't mean he doesn't have one. It just means right. it's not mentioned. Yeah. There are other kings that are mentioned in the same list as him in Genesis, and their genealogy is not also mentioned not mentioned. And, and it's like he has neither beginning or end. That could be the same thing. It's not mentioned. We don't know when he was born or when he went away. Yeah. We just know he was. Yeah. And there's two pieces of that important for the argument. There's the both no beginning, no end piece, right? Where he is, if you take he's just a human, he is a model of Christ in that no end or beginning is mentioned. Where Jesus also, no beginning or end is true. But also the lack of genealogy. As we you know, reread last time from Ezra, all right? Genealogy was extremely important for the Aaronic priesthood. If you couldn't prove your genealogy, then you can't be priest, all right? And the thing we read was, okay, you can't prove your genealogy. We'll wait for Urim and Thummim, someone who can use that, and then we will decide on your genealogy. That's from Ezra. Essentially, um, it's a way of casting lots to, de to decide, divide providence, all right? Um, that's in Ezra. Two, if I recall correctly. So, without a genealogy, very important, all right? Because Jesus is not in a priestly genealogy, all right? He's, a, he's in a kingly genealogy. And lack of beginning and lack of end comparison. So, yeah. I'll let you decide for yourself. I won't tell you what I think. I have a question. Yeah. Um, if he's not a dude and he's... A priest forever. What's the job of a priest? And did Jesus completely fulfill that or not? And does he still have a job if he's a priest forever? Is he still priesting? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately it comes back to the notion of what's the function of the priest? Mm -hmm. 
is the function of the priest purely to do sin offerings? All right, and the answer is no. That is not the only function of the priest. That's an important part of the, of the priesthood. We've already had this particular discussion about Jesus. And that is, this is one difference between him and Aaron. All right? Aaron had to keep going in, and when he died, his successor had to keep going in too. All right? That's one major distinction between the Melchizedekian priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus just did it once and never has to do it again. So therefore, that function of the priesthood is done, one and done. Never needs to happen again. However, there is another function of the priesthood, which is, in Hebrew's language, the offering of uh, gifts and sacrifices. All right, think of it more like the gifts. What does what does what else does the priest do? The priest should be praying for the people. He should be blessing people. He is a spiritual mediator between um, the, the the rabble, the, you know, the common mob. All right, the spiritual mediator between the people of God, everyone within that community, and God Himself. In that sense, and this is a big point in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is still functioning. So as a priest, he must continue to be a priest forever. He will always intercede for us. Now, what he doesn't talk about, I don't think, is how does that change after the resurrection and the new creation? I don't know. I don't think he ever discusses it. But even now, Jesus still is functioning as priest for us, just not in the sacrificial way. That happened once and only once. So, does that answer your question? So then Melchizedek is also interceding and blessing. That's a good question. Yeah, what is he doing? Question. Okay. Melchizedek doing if he's a priest forever? What's he doing now? He could still be a priest. How many priests do we have in Christianity? As many as there are Christians. All right. Um, so yeah. He would still be functioning as priest. And, right, if we think about potentially, right, especially if, if you see him as living forever, certainly still functioning as a priest. Uh, if you think of him as he's just a guy and he is currently um, in, in Sheol, but being blessed by God in, in paradise in Sheol. We talked about this a long time ago, right? In a blessed place at this point. How is he functioning? I don't know if he's functioning as a priest right now. I don't know how that works because it doesn't really talk about it. Um, but certainly he would essentially be in the same role as all of us. Right. In that sense, at least. And, and if Jonathan's supposition is correct, then that solves that too. Yes, it does. If it's Jesus himself, then, yeah. Now, if you then take this to later Christian speculation, all right, um, you know, we as Christians, uh, as Protestants, we do not pray to saints, right? Well, I don't, anyway. Generally speaking, in Baptist circles, uh, we do not. It's something generally foreign to, to Baptist practice. Um, but it was very common in the past. One thing that's interesting about that is that that thing, even though we don't do it, is a recognition, all right, of something, <coughs> something real that the saints of old are alive in a sense not resurrected right not resurrected but alive and conscious and active all right and so you know that's something that we don't focus on at all 
really, except when we're talking about our past loved ones. But yet, in the author of Hebrews, uh, well, you are going to have a hall of faith soon, and this whole notion of being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, all right? The whole notion of that is not a surrounded by a cloud of you know, dead unconscious witnesses. That's not the point, actually. It's the opposite of that. It's a lot of people watching you, basically, knowing what's going on. Um, so they, a lot of Christian traditions have more of a concept of conscious saints active, maybe even praying, right? Especially if you pray, for, pray to a saint to pray on your behalf. That would be very, very normal. Yes, Jim? I have a conversation with mm-hmm. a Roman Catholic when I was working at Bill, and she said, seems that our prayers don't get far enough, and we need a middle man like a saint or Mary mm-hmm. to get them up, to boost them upstairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, I mean, it's nonsense, right? It's totally nonsense. Yeah, if you, if you, it depends on the way you take it, right? If you take it that way, you go, no, that's clearly bonkers, right? Um, I simply told her that biblically speaking. when Jesus was asked to teach us to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Yeah. Afterwards, he said, the Lord's Prayer, he says, or you can pray to Mary or one of my apostles, you know. Right. <laughs> right, we're as Baptists, why do we not pray to saints? Because the scriptures never say pray to saints. I mean, that's why we don't do it. It's not that we disbelieve saints can pray after death. Of course they can. If they are conscious, if they are conscious, all right, then they can pray. But we don't do it as a practice because, well, scriptures never say so. And so we avoid it. And so, therefore, the notion that we really need to for our prayers to be effective is also for us going to be, that's completely wrong. But you're not saying it's necessarily a negative practice. Um, I think for some it can be because of what Chip said. I mean, if they, get, if they have this notion that your prayers are ineffective unless you pray to the saints or to Mary, uh, no. No, we should absolutely very strenuously argue against that because that is most certainly wrong. I think Testament in the Psalms, God, God Almighty repeatedly says, call to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. God is honored when his people call cry out to him. Mm-hmm. He's not honored when they cry out to someone else. And so I think just for 100%. Honoring, honoring God. <laughs> With you. are very holy and righteous to pray for you. And in mm-hmm. the Bible it says, you know, the fervent, effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And sometimes I think when we're really struggling, it's easy to not feel righteous, even though we're hidden in under Jesus' blood. And so for him, asking a saint to pray for you is like, it's not, it's not that your prayers won't go straight to God too. It's just we do this in our lives all the time. We, sure. ask, we ask people to pray for us. And it's, it's just acknowledging that cloud of witnesses that it's not just the people we know physically here now who are righteous and who can reach out to the mm-hmm. Lord on your behalf. It's also the people you admire from this great historical tradition that all of them can pray for you. Sure. Yeah. And if someone prays directly to God but also would pray to the saints, I would not say to that person, you're a heretic. Um, I don't do it. But I see the logic and I, I, I don't see anything wrong in the logic. But in terms of 
Christian practice, right? It all depends on where do you get your Christian practice from. Do you get it from Scripture alone? All right? Nobody fully gets it from Scripture alone. We all base it on tradition. Being realistic, we do. Where do you base it? Do you primarily try to base it in the first century, or or do you add more practice later on, where that becomes a very common thing? So... Um, I, I would not, you know, I would not immediately tell one of those people, you know, you're being an idolater and an unchristian. I don't think that's right. Um, it's not something I practice, and it's just not here that I can see. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. But I don't think it's right. That, the traditions yeah. that follow that are, if that was permissible. And I think a lot of that's going to depend, all right? You have, just like you have in Baptist circles, you have people that, that come to church, don't really care intellectually about anything that's going on or what the scriptures say, they just kind of come. And you look at the, and, and that's a problem. You're going to have the same thing in the Catholics, you're going to have the same thing in the Eastern Orthodox. You're just going to have, yeah, I've just been doing this my whole life, this is just what we're told to do, so I do it, right? Um, same situation in both groups. And what we shouldn't do, I don't think, is we shouldn't go, all right, you see that in some people, and therefore that's how all of them are. All right? I don't believe that. This, person, this, this person's a Catholic. He prays to Mary. So therefore, he's, a, he's an idolater. I don't think so. Do I think that's right? No, not really. Are some of them idolaters? Yes, they are, because they say that Mary is a co-redemptrix with Jesus. Nope, don't agree with that at all. Theologically, certainly wrong. Um, right? Just be, I just say be careful. Don't, don't average out whether you're talking about Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, or, Eastern Orthodox, or even Baptist. All right? it's, there's a wide variety of, of practice. And some of them are going to be well-meaning. And some of them are going to be just, this is what I've always done, this is what I learned, so therefore I do it that way. Yes. But we know that Jesus is God and yeah. God can hear. And so it would be a waste of your breath, I think, to call out to someone who might or might not be able to hear when you could call to someone who you know can hear. I'm in agreement. Yeah, there's there's an unspoken idea um, that everyone in the spiritual realm can hear you. And you, this applies to the devil as well. There's this unspoken idea that, oh, well, the devil, the devil knows everything. The devil knows all the bad thoughts we're thinking. Uh, the devil is going, just listening to me all of the time. All right? And the answer to that is, blat- no, that is blatantly false. All right? He's a limited creature. All things other than God are limited creatures. Um, reality is the devil can't listen. All right? Believe in the devil. The devil can't listen to all of us. He's busy. All right. He's busy doing stuff. And sure, he has other. There are other demons. Sure, they're also they're limited in number, limited in power. And so, sorry, you can't blame all your sin on Satan. Right. This applies on the positive spiritual realm as well. There's. All right. 
how many people can pray to you know St. Matthew at one time in St. Matthew Harris? All right, I don't know. I'm I'm certain there's all sorts of speculation about this in the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics, and they will certainly have opinions, and I just don't know them. Um, but we ought not as- assume that they are, like you said, can hear everything and could even listen to everybody. Yeah. It's also quite another thing to pray to an image of a saint or Mary, like a statue mm-hmm. or a shrine that contains the image. You don't know who those people look like. That's true. And that could be very well construed as idolatry. It could be, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. And you can think about this just in terms of all medieval architecture. All right, um, One of the points of much of Christian iconography has been, let's help the saints who can't read all right, focus and worship. And now there's lots of Protestants who will say any sort of image of Jesus is idolatry. All right? Some Protestants will say you shouldn't even take pictures of people. Um, what? It's it's it, there was some some idea it's, yeah well not important at this point um, and so basically do I do I think all of that is necessarily idolatry I don't I don't necessarily think so can it become idolatry most certainly true sure I think that medieval architecture and in other faith traditions there's more of a recognition of, of the human body and habit and mm-hmm. like I mean if you go into a medieval church it's shaped like a cross there's a, there's a way in which you're entering into a space that's completely curated yeah. to make to focus your your thoughts and attention through multiple avenues of you know orienting your body a certain way in a certain direction the, the visual stimulates a certain part of your brain, moving your body in time where you, you kneel at this point, you rise at this point. It's very, I think that's something we've, we've kind of lost a little bit in, in a lot of Protestant mm-hmm. circles, is that it's not only about our brain, and the brain is really controlled to a great extent through the practices of the body, and I don't, medieval architecture understands that. And I think mm-hmm. part of it is because a lot of people, like you said, couldn't, and so there were other avenues for, for training. Yes. Your, your faith practice. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in that, just like I think there's a lot of value in liturgy. All right? <laughs> if you don't think we have a liturgy, just realize, just take a look at what we do every Sunday when we have our, our, our service. We always follow the same basic structure, unless someone talks too long. And then Mike has to change it up. <laughs> so that sometimes happens. Speaking of, we should draw this too close soon. So, uh, yeah. All right, so I think so. Next Lord's Day, Lord willing. All right, what we'll do is really pick up our discussion. Um, I think in verse eleven of chapter seven. Right, we I want to focus a little bit more on some of that. We will pick up that discussion there, and we will continue on. We will no longer. All right, we will no longer talk about if Melchizedek is some non-human figure and we will avoid discussions of prayers to the saints at least for now all right <laughs> or proper iconography we should go in depth into that sometime feel free okay <laughs> uh, well, yes bill just briefly so the, the iconography here when you 
use those mm -hmm. to um, inform your worship. When you close your eyes and you pray, mm -hmm. do you picture the statue of Jesus as Jesus in your mind's eye? Because you shouldn't. That's not him. We're not supposed to try to even form an image. I'm not saying that, that I believe that all depictions are evil. Just saying, does it have a? Do you picture the Anglo-Saxon Jesus in your mind when you pray? Because right. it definitely wasn't that. White guy, blue eyes, kind of. Kind so, of yeah. okay, do you well, picture here, blue eyes. A, you picture a stereotypical Jewish person as your Jesus. You know, we're. I think we're not supposed to even try to do that. God is spirit. We're. we're Whatever image we came up with, it wouldn't be good enough. It wouldn't be right. It's not him. It's true. But we're going to do it. Right? And we ought to think of him as human. Right? True. It, yeah, we ought to think of him as human. Because he is. Glorified, perfected, but genuinely human. In a way that we will be. Genuinely human, too. I'm beginning to think you're a Protestant. Beginning to think so. I, I actually think the praying to saints thing makes logical sense because we ask other saints all the time, why do we ask? Why don't we just pray straight to God? We want more help. You pray, too, and you pray, too. And What do we think is going to happen if 50 people pray instead of one? Did God not hear the one? Well, he did, but he also hears the 50. It is very logical. Well, it's, I think there's a difference between asking someone to pray for you and then praying to them. And we don't go up to somebody and say, for sure. Run, I'm going to pray to you so that you can pray for me. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we, we all look at that as wrong. Yeah. But if you just say, we're going to ask the, pray, the saints to pray for us, More we're like not going to pray to them, bow down to them and say... Yeah. More like a petition than a prayer. Yeah, just like, hey, this is my list of things I want. I need you or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's different. Yeah. Well, in the, in, the, in the Roman prayer, from the Saint of Hail Mary, they're asking Mary to pray for them. I've got a new Eastern Orthodox friend. I'll ask him about this maybe sometime. Yeah. But, but I think the safe route is that there's no precedent for it in the scriptures. There is precedent in the scriptures of the apostles telling living saints, pray for us, help us in prayer. Mm -hmm. We don't see them. The yeah. But the point, I think the point with the Orthodox is that they are living. So it is asking a living. <laughs> it's just we don't have a way of communicating face to face with them, but they are living. I think there might too be a, a lesson whenever... whenever uh, I agree. The calls <laughs> are there and the people bow down to them. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they get really, really upset mm -hmm. about that. They do, and yeah. They, they rebuke them and they correct them. And they say, mm -hmm. oh, only pray to God. We're not. And that's holy apostles. Yeah, and I, I think it's a difference, too, of like, oh, if I can get one of those saints that's up in heaven to pray for me, I'm better off than if I just go ask a saint on earth. It's like kind of worshiping them because they're already up there and, well, they are special, though, right? The Dakota witnesses are special because they're around the throne. They're still just the same as us. They're just dead. <laughs> and no longer on the surface. So. I mean, <laughs> they 
he runs the LJ on the It's like so many things being said, I could say, I agree to. You know, whatever. <laughs> We are. All right. So today has been a fun day of speculation. It has been great. I'm glad we've had this time. Wasn't quite spending planning, but I mean, it is important to talk about this issue, frankly, because different Christian traditions approach things differently. All right. Uh, well, the way I'd rather approach it is to give you some specific materials from the Orthodox or the Catholics for what their arguments are. That's the better way to approach it, rather than just us, you know, Protestants riffing on people we disagree with. Right? It's not really the best way to do things. Anyway, we'll, and maybe we will bring that up again in the future. But today, I'm going to officially draw this to a close and say that no more. However, if anyone wants to talk about it at lunch, you know, that's what lunch time is for, having good conversations and eating, of course. All right. So let's be done. Uh, Jonathan, will you please close some prayer?